Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history, like pixies, plumbing and horsehair. Oh, I love the idea of doing something on horsehair. I'm not quite sure what we'd do, but we could also do picks, sticks and tricks, wicks, slicks and fix. So it's the, it's the history of fixing things. It's about handy men and women and DIY and... Um, I, and I say this as somebody who isn't particularly handy, but I do have a friend who is particularly gifted with his hands uh, and has made uh, in recent years a pizza oven, a smoker. He smoked me sausages the other day, raised beds, a chicken coop, uh, whereas I have <laughs> barely a practical bone in my body. Are, are you handy, Sam? I've seen you make a quill, James. You made a quill in front of my ver- in front of my very eye. Is that the only thing you can do? No, no. I I, de- I self-deprecate uh, dis- beautifully there. Um, I, talented all round, uh, not. Um, however, with, this is to be a complete aside. We will be following the links as always in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of dreams is in fact all about demons, temptation, the rise and fall of empires. It's about Islam, recipes, spoons. Oh, and of course, it's about cheese and childhood. Or that the history of temper tantrums, which is one of my recent favourites, is in fact all about Henry II and the murder of Thomas Beckett. That was one of our recent homeschooling episodes it was it was very good fun. I want to do more on on temper and tantrums generally. Uh, I think we should do that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the man who is not sitting anywhere near me because we're still the other side of town. Uh, he is a memorial to the study of history itself. He's a living memorial. He is <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's the brilliant Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Thank you. That's very charming. Charming. I was thinking of of uh, of, of, of you uh, and and thinking about um, how I describe the man not sitting opposite me who's in his shed across town. Well, let's just say, Sam, that if you were a statue, you would be the Admiral Lord Nelson atop his column. I know he's a big, you're a big oh. hero of yours. Uh, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Um, if you haven't worked it out yet, James and I are going to get to grips with the history of statues. We've both been inspired to do this, obviously, by what's been going on in the news. Uh, so much to do with history, the past, with historians' views. And we thought that the one thing that we could do was to bring you some different perspectives, at the very least, on the history of of statues, on what they mean, um, why they're important, um, just an unexpected way of thinking about um, these, why these, these, these permanent 
lifelike people who live around our cities and our towns, James. They're there, they're inhabiting it with us. And I think it's time we spent a bit of time thinking about who they are, why they were there and what they could possibly say about history in an unexpected way. We guarantee uh, that if you listen to this podcast, you will not think about statues the same way ever again. I think we can promise that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and the reason that we're doing this, everyone's talking about statues at the moment. So we're sort of sort of we don't really want to jump on that bandwagon. Um, but we thought that it was actually quite timely for us to uh, intervene here. And, and, you know, statues and the interpretation and people's views about statues have a very long history. What we're currently seeing at the moment is a, a, a debate uh, about the, the sort of political and ideological meaning of statues on our streets at the time when, you know, we're sort of reeling from um, the, the, the death of, of George Floyd uh, in the United States and, you know, and the implications that this has had. We've seen recently in Bristol, a 17th century slave traders statue on Edward Colston, uh, being sort of thrown into the river there because of his his, his sort of past. Um, we and, and also this is being played out, this kind of debate around all sorts of statues. Robert Milligan's statue, a slave trader, was removed from the West India Quay in London uh, by landowners, the Canal and River Trust. Um, and there are all sorts of campaigns on at the moment. A thousand protesters in Oxford outside of Oriel College campaigning for the removal of the statue of Cecil Rhodes, that 19th century businessman and politician who was in South Africa and supported apartheid-type uh, measures. We can also see it in Francis Drake's statue uh, in my own town of, of Plymouth, the university where I, where I am. There are debates uh, around that. Robert Clive as well. Um, uh, and in our own town of, of Exeter, Redvers Bullers, uh, statue uh, has become, you know, something of a, a sort of controversial statue because of the role that he played as a military leader in the the Second Boer War. And I think, and there are all sorts of other things, all all sorts of other statues around the country uh, that people are debating. And I think this debate around statues is a very, very fraught one, and it shows how history or heritage, in other words, how we understand the past in the present, so how we understand history today, is so deeply contested. And statues were set up to memorialise people who were viewed one way in the past, often as heroes or as philanthropists, and are now viewed in a very different light. And it's not just that, it's, it's heritage sites. It doesn't have to be statues, it could be churches or shrines, have different meanings to different people and are contested. And I think what we're seeing is the way in which history has a real relevance in a series of culture wars or history wars. And at present, the Black Lives Matter movement is targeting statues of historic figures who they believe had a racist past connected to empire or slavery. And I think it's important to have a look at the different views on this. And there are several sort of really dominant critical approaches. And these are epitomised by the views of two historians. The first one is David Olasuga. Um, and he very clearly calls for the removal of all of these statues. And he wrote a very eloquent article in The Guardian recently that where he basically, you know, he, he really sort of um, encapsulated everything 
uh, about the sort of removal of the statue of a 17th century slave trader. And, and he ends up by put, put literally on a pedestal in the very heart of the city, this slave trader. Um, Tonight, Edward Colston sleeps with the fishes. So that, that's basically about the erasure of statues. Now, there's a slightly different view coming from a same direction that basically we need to be um, wary of this, of this kind of history in our public place. And this is epitomised by somebody called Sir Jeff Palmer, who's Scotland's first black professor. And he has a slightly different approach. He's somebody who's you know, been taking part in, in Black Lives Matter protests, um, he argues against the demolition of slave traders' statues, though. Um, and the reason that he does it is that he argues that their destruction meant atrocities of the past would be forgotten. And, and he basically says that what we're doing is, in concentrating on the statues, you're actually ignoring what is a deeper problem. And it, he's quoted here, slave history has to be done properly in the curriculum. And it has to be got examinable so that it changes attitudes. That's what we need. It has got to be like maths and physics and all our other mainstream subjects. Otherwise, only then long held racist views would be entrenched and they need to be understood and overcome. And so some of the some of the proposals are for putting uh, plaques alongside these statues that basically explain you know, precisely what the negative impacts of these people were during their, their lifetime. Now, of course, the problem is that the very same statues that those people are protesting against are for others, you know, something that are deeply important and have an emotional resonance for them in other ways. Um, if you have a look at what's happening in what happened in London at the weekend, uh, and what happened in what is happening in the United States around the Confederate statues, you've got far right groups you know, saying that they are protecting their heritage and their culture. So effectively, what you're doing is you're seeing a clash of ideologies here. But I want to end this little sort of segment here with a with a quote from my friend uh, Jerome de Groot, who wrote uh, an article a few years ago um, in uh, History Today, I think it was about statues, Confederate statues in the United States and the importance that they had for the sort of the, the alt-right uh, over there. But what, what really struck me about this article is what he is his concluding paragraph. History happens in public and the memory enacted in parks, squares and streets is important for the way a polity defines itself. How and what a nation chooses to remember the strategies for commemoration and the implications for acts of memory, these are all deeply important and immediate issues for citizens of those states to engage with. What type of memory is appropriate or not, and what kind of person is celebrated, set a tone and an example for the civic life of the country. And I think if you're looking for a justification of the value of history today, it lies exactly in that. History is never more relevant. There we are. How's that, Sam, for a little little start of a 10?
it was brilliant. You gave me so much to think about. I was slightly, um, I was stuck down a cul-de-sac of thought of my own. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really, really enjoy that. And um, I, I'm actually quite inspired by this, this theme in the news. Uh, it's, it, one thing that it certainly is, is evidence of huge numbers of people becoming engaged with the past based on them understanding the past in new ways, which is all... Uh, uh, because of the hard work of generations of historians. Much more work needs to be done, particularly in certain areas, such as race relations. But um, people tearing down statues is actually, uh, you know, one way of looking at it is evidence of people changing the way they think about the past and then their behaviour is changing because of that, which I think is really interesting and important. Um, what I wanted to do was to just talk about um, statues as a historical source beyond the value of them being put up by previous generations. Because so much of the discussion which has come about has said, oh, well, these statues were, were set up in an age where they were uh, either when slavery was legal or whether people um, had a different ways of um, different ways of thinking, a different culture in which they've been brought up. But of course, statues as a material object are a, a very, very valuable piece of evidence. Um, and I totally get why Edward Colston was put into the bottom of the, the dock where his slave ships used to come and dock. Um, there was a bit of poetry in that. But uh, th there is a certain aspect of uh, these statues which we need to bear in mind. And the one statue I think which really makes this point is one which was recently uh, scanned in Amsterdam. It was uh, put through a CT scanner. It was a, uh, a statue. This is the Drents Museum, wonderful Drents Museum. It was a statue of a Buddhist monk, um, which was put through a CT scanner. And inside it, they found the body of a Buddhist monk. So here we had a statue of a person which was actually containing the mummified body of a real person. And uh, it's just a powerful point to make that these objects themselves are valuable historical objects. They're historical pieces of evidence. This particularly has come out, um, has happened, uh, is a practice called um, a, a Buddhist practice uh, around about a thousand AD of making living Buddhas. When the monks did this, they went into a, a process of self-mummification. They would spend as much as a decade following a special diet, gradually starving their bodies to enhance the chances of preservation. They were essentially preparing their bodies to become in the perfect condition for mummification. So they didn't eat any food made from rice, wheat, soybeans, but instead they ate nuts, berries, tree bark, pine needles, all in slowly diminishing quantities. What that does is reduce the body fat and moisture crucial because those are the two things which can cause a corpse to decay. So if you can prepare your body not to have so much fat and so much moisture, it's less likely to decay. They also ate herbs, um, other types of nuts and sesame seeds, and those were chosen because they inhibit bacterial growth. Again, something else which will, um, is more likely to ensure that the, 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 the corpse survives. They also drank a poisonous tree sap um, and what that does is creates a sort of toxicity which repels insects um, and it almost are, acts as its own type of embalming fluid. 
So it's the most extreme example here, but what you've got is what you think on the outside is a statue, but in fact, it's a tomb, it's something different. And James and I, we've actually come across a variety of statues which have interesting historical relevance on our travels. Do you remember at St Mary's Church in Limington in South Somerset, James? We went to this beautiful grade one listed building. We did our Histories of the Unexpected show there. And they have a wonderful um, a statue which was engraving on a tomb. It's an effigy of Sir Richard Giverney. He was, um, we're talking about a 14th century knight here. And the value of that tomb is in the armour which it depicts. So there are very few sources of evidence for clothing for knights in this period, but this is to be uh, considered to be one of the most detailed and one of the most beautiful. So you get a sense of what a 14th century knight is wearing, whether it's looking at the details of his bassinet, his helmet, he's um, clearly got a male coif beneath it, uh, a strap under his chin. You can see the mounts which support the bassinet. And also you can see the details of the protection on his arms and on his legs. Basically, it's a wonderful depiction of the clothing that a knight would wear from the 14th century. And there are all sorts of other wonderful examples. One of the ones I've come across, which I love the most, is of an admiral in... Um, uh, it's in the Louvre in Paris, and this is a chap called Philippe de Chabot. He's an admiral of France in 1543, so he's the, the, the French admiral under Francis I. Um, and what's important about him is that he is holding uh, something called a boatswain's call. Um, so this is a, a, it's a type of whistle. There's a description here from, from the 18th century. It's a, a sort of whistle or pipe of silver or brass used by the boatswain and his mates to summon the sailors to their duty and direct them in the different employments of the ship. It is sounded to various strains, adapted to the different exercises as hoisting, heaving, lowering, veering away, belaying, letting go a tackle, etc. And the piping of it is as attentively observed by sailors as the beat of the drum to march, retreat, rally, charge is obeyed by soldiers." Um, and this is used essentially uh, because this high pitch of this whistle can be heard very clearly above the sea. And it's actually believed to date back to the Greek Navy, where it was customary for the boatswain to set time for the rowers on the galleys with a flute. And what it then transfers into is it becomes a, a badge of insignia. It becomes a mark of office. And the key thing with this tomb in the Louvre is that we don't have any examples from the 16th century. But here, cast in stone is a beautifully um, created example of an admiral lying there with the mark of office in his hand. So there you've got the uh, statue acting as a, as a historical source beyond the fact that it is simply a statue. It's more complex. Um, and actually, one of the wonderful things about this is if I had a bit of time, James, I'd like to do some research into Philippe de Chabot, about whom I know next to nothing. <laughs> However, listen to this. He was born in 1495, died in 1543. He was made, uh, this is the description from the Louvre website, he was made Admiral de France on March the 23rd, 1526, on his being released from captivity. But it doesn't tell you where he's captured. I, I found out that he and then the king, Francis I, had actually been um, captured after the Battle of Pavia, uh, 1525. This is part of the wars between France and the Habsburgs. Um, absolutely fascinating person. He is basically made admiral on the, on the basis of a promise made to him by Francis I when they were both kings. Um, 
And Francis, uh, he he succeeds his cousin. Uh, he was never knew he was going to be king, basically. He succeeds his cousin and father-in-law, Louis XIII, who dies without a son. So then Francis makes his mate uh, from childhood into an admiral. He's then imprisoned with the king. Um, and then he's later imprisoned again later in life because of his mother's intrigues. And this is um, Louise, uh, Louise of Savoy, who's a fascinating person. And she's up to her up to her elbows with um, negotiating with Cardinal Wolsey, with the Suleiman the Magnificent, um, a fundamental, uh, a key figure in the Franco-Ottoman alliance of the 16th century. Um, so there you go. I really want to find out so much more about Admiral Chabot. And I've been inspired to do so by the existence of his statue in the Louvre and that beautiful carving of the bosun's whistle. Excellent. Excellent. And you should. You should spend your entire summer trying to do that remotely online. <laughs> <laughs> and then re- report back. <laughs> so I will. I, I, will. I want to take us in a, a slightly different direction because um, I think one of the things that we're seeing now is with this sort of the the sort of toppling of statues. This actually has a long history, uh, and we wrote about this in a chapter on recycling in our book on the unexpected history of the Romans. Um, It was a brilliant chapter. I really enjoyed writing it. Um, And basically what you see there is the way in which in ancient Rome, um, this culture of recycling was everywhere throughout the the empire. And people commonly reused, renovated and repurposed all sorts of materials from buildings and arches, glass and jewellery to portraits, sculpture, and importantly, for what we're go- I'm going on to say, for statues. And second-hand markets throughout um, the city of Rome sold everything from clothing to antiques, and villas in the countryside were equipped with workshops dedicated to mending and recycling materials. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, you know, when we think about recycling today, you know, the Romans were there well before us. And so with this widespread culture of recycling and reuse, sculpture and architecture were altered and amended and added to in all sorts of ways, connected with those who ruled and who had once ruled. And it's not simply about scavenging and and destruction um, as part of economic stagnation and imperial decline, but it's actually something that's explained by the consideration of politics, culture, religion, and also aesthetic choices. And basically, at the root of it, this recycling and repurposing of the material remains of the past, was actually deeply connected to a Roman interest in public image, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And throughout the ancient world, public statuary and architecture were visible symbols, as they are today, celebrating wealthy benefactors who paid for and commissioned them. I mean, that's why you see all of these statues around the place. The statue in Bristol that we were talking about, it's there because it's celebrating a wealthy benefactor, you know, who's done so much for. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A city and has ultimately paid for his, you know, to be in that place as a way of sort of, you know, amending for the sins of the past, I suppose. Um, but but in, in ancient Rome, emperors, consuls, senators, wealthy patricians all had statues and civic buildings of various forms chiselled in their names to honour them. And just as statues and buildings projected the magnificence of rulers, especially the emperors, so too the repurposing or redesigning effectively erased the memories of those who were once associated with them and later generations put up their own memory in place. This is a practice known to later generations as Domnatio Memori. It's not a term that's used at the time, but it basically means the destruction and confiscation of property, the banning of personal names, the erasure of names and inscriptions, all of which was aimed at deliberately obliterating the memory of an individual from the material landscape of the Roman Empire. So somebody who falls from power, falls out of favour, basically just gets written out. Well, not written out, smashed and chiselled out of history. For example, there is a preserved in Penn Museum in Philadelphia. There is a marble block about five feet high erected in 95 CE with a commemorative inscription which formed part of a monument dedicated to the emperor Domitian, who ruled between 81 and 96 CE by the town of Puzzoli, uh, which is basically located near Naples in Italy. And after his assassination, the Senate ordered the defacement of all monuments erected to honour his name. And this is a an, an really, really good material example of this order being undertaken. And presumably what happened was a workman armed with a mallet and a chisel had to travel to and climb up the monument, carefully chiselling away each letter of the inscription until it was no longer visible. And some of the letters are completely obliterated, chipped away, while others are partially visible, suggesting that the workman's hand was probably getting tired as he hammered away. <laughs> now, on one side of the monument was an inscription to the emperor, which has been chiselled away to erase his memory. Um, and on the other side is a, on the on the opposite side of the slab is actually are actually signs of the repurposing of this. And there's an image of a Roman soldier and a prefect of the Praetorian Guard, the emperor's own bodyguard, which were inscribed into the stone. And this was not merely covering up the identity of a past emperor, but also the clear promotion of a new imperial regime. Rather than wasting perfectly good stone, it was recycled to honour the Emperor Trajan, who ruled between 98 and 117 CE. And it was now being used for a completely new public image. And this is, you can see this in, in all sorts of ways throughout the Roman period where Statues and sculptures have had their face cut off, altered features, repurposed in somebody else's image. And it also happens in paintings too. You know, a painting might be 
um, modified to incorporate new features, codifying the power of new ruling elites. Now, very few paintings survive from antiquity, but we hear from Pliny, who relates the fate of a painting produced by the great artist Apelles, uh, who flourished in around 4th century BCE, whose portrait of Alexander the Great capturing a personification of war was on public view. It was basically symbolic of Alexander's celebrated military victories and, and the conquering of war. And Pliny reports that after many decades on display, the Emperor Claudius commissioned Roman artists to paint over Alexander's face and to set there instead features of Augustus, the founder of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And in so doing, Claudius was drawing a connection between his Alexandra's military achievements and the image of Augustus's own Pax Romana. So there, we can see it in not only in statues, but also in paintings. And it is something that has, you know, that has classical and ancient origins. So there we are, Sam. Ancient Rome for you. Yeah. I love it when the Romans have done something that we've all done before. It does, it does make you feel very unoriginal. Uh, I, I wanted to talk a bit about um, destroying uh, statues which are evidence of free thought and liberty. Mm. It's the mm. opposite of, of what's going on now. And that's got its own history, which, uh, which I think is as, as important as what's going on at the moment. Um, just briefly talk about the Statue of Liberty itself. So... Um, it, the, the framework of it is built, but it, it, it was made in France. Uh, and it was, to understand what's going on here with the relationship between the Americans and France, you have to go back to uh, the War of American Independence and understand that the French provided their navy to help the Americans who didn't have a significant ocean-going navy to fight uh, fight the English. And the, um, the, the inclusion of the French in the war was one of the key things that helped tip the balance of power and helped the Americans eventually achieve their independence. So there's a long, interesting history of the French being interested in this idea of liberty, uh, particularly in relation to what's happening in America. So um, the, the, the Statue of Liberty is finally completed in the 1880s. It's made out of copper, but the metal framework is made by Gustave Eiffel, who made the Eiffel Tower. So you've got to imagine a mini uh, human-looking Eiffel Tower inside the Statue of Liberty. Now, that was nearly destroyed during the First World War. It was nearly destroyed by accident, but nonetheless, it came under attack. And that was part of what's known as the Black Tom Explosion. And that was an act of sabotage by German agents um, in America during the First World War. And it was one of several different examples of... Um, of sabotage by Germans. And what they did was uh, the Black Tom is an island in New York Harbour next to Liberty Island where the Statue of Liberty is. And it was then a major munitions depot for the northeastern United States. And there's an enormous explosion on the night of July the 30th. It created a, a, a detonation wave that travelled at 24,000 feet per second. There are fragments from the explosion. Um, some landed in the Statue of Liberty itself, which is what, how it became damaged. But there are others that land um, over a mile away. And it's smashing windows all over the place. They hear the explosion as far away as Philadelphia. Um, and, and windows are broken in Lower Manhattan, some, in fact, in Times Square itself. 
So the statue's damage cost $100,000 in 1916 to actually repair it, with particular damage to the skirt and the torch. So it's just one of several German sabotage campaigns against the US. And because of the scale of the explosion, it actually was one of the things that tipped America into joining the First World War. It was an attack essentially on American soil. It was too close to the Statue of Liberty. It damaged her and it had immense propaganda a propaganda impact. There are clear parallels here with the attack on Pearl Harbor in the Second World War. So there you've got an example of, of, a, of a statue representing Liberty being damaged. Um, and there's another wonderful one which is actually linked to the Statue of Liberty itself. And this is the Goddess of Democracy. And that is a statue which was deliberately created to look like the Statue of Liberty. And it was built in Tiananmen Square in 1989. So it was inspired by um, these French democratic traditions, which goes back to the French Revolution and also linked to the American, American Revolution as well. So it was their own, um, the, the Chinese students, their own Statue of Liberty. Remember what they're doing? This is in the backdrop of major social changes in China uh, after the death of Mao. Um, there's a great deal of concern about the future, what's happening with the political elite. Uh, particularly students are incredibly worried. They, they, they are arguing for more accountability. They want more visible due process, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. All of these things which they could see were um, very clearly accessible in the West and they were concerned that it was all going to be shut down or continue to be shut down in communist China. Um, at the height of these demonstrations, there are almost a million people in Tiananmen Square. And there's that very famous picture of the students and the tanks when the, the Chinese declare martial law. Uh, there's a massacre. Lots of the demonstrators are murdered. But you very rarely see any images of this extraordinary statue. And they actually they made it out of foam and papier-mâché over a, a metal structure. And what they wanted to do was make it so big that they, they couldn't, it would basically dissuade the government to dismantle it or it would become such a difficult task that it would take them a great deal of time. They'd therefore be able to get um, photographs of it. They could actually have them um, visibly dismantling a huge uh, symbol of the freedom. But nonetheless, the Chinese government, after they declared martial law, they did destroy and take down this statue. And this statue was there to, um, to, to be a symbol of liberty. So two wonderful examples there of, of people doing the opposite to what's happening at the moment. Oh, very good. Very good. I want to take us to the Reformation. Statues oh. are all about the Reformation and iconoclasm. And iconoclasm is basically the destruction of icons and images or monuments. And it's something that we can see, you know, again, having a very long history. We can see it in, in ancient Rome. And one of the things I didn't talk in my little section about ancient Rome is the way in which pagan statues, you know, get, get replaced um, with sort of Christian uh, statues or sort of erased and replaced as Christ Christian statues uh, as as Rome converts slowly to Christianity. However, where we see this happening uh, is in the 16th century in the European Reformations. Uh, and it's connected to the idea that in the Bible, in the Ten Commandments, in the Second Commandment, um, that basically you shouldn't 
um, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under earth thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them so this is the second commandment and it is against idolatry so it's what they they reject now pr early protestant reformers are split in their attitudes to statues if you take somebody like martin luther he taught the importance of images as tools for instruction and aids to devotion uh, stating if it is not a sin but good to have the image of christ in my heart why should it be a sin to have it in my eyes and so lutheran churches were quite ornate on on the inside with a prominent crucifix um, and in contrast to this um, other reformers leaders such as calvin uh, and and Spingley, uh, encouraged the removal of religious images by by basically stressing you know this this second commandment and what you see throughout europe is a a an attack in reformed protestant cities and territories on religious images and there are significant iconoclastic riots taking place throughout europe zurich in 1523 copenhagen in 1530 munster in 1534, Geneva in 1535, Augsburg in 1537, Baal in 1529, in Scotland in 1559, in Rouen in 1560, La Rochelle in 1562. Um, in fact, in 1566, in the Netherlands, um, in the Low Countries, there's something called the Bieldenstorm, which literally means the statue storm uh, where they tore down catholic statues and images all across the low countries which is actually one of the leading factors in the outbreak of their war of independence from spain uh, two years later in 1568 uh, in france the protestant huguenots attacked catholic images as a way of purifying their own communities and claiming the space for themselves um, however this often is a very sort of um, destructive affair it's often in, in rioting uh, and it's about new it's about jurisdictions of different uh, religious groups so protestants versus catholics and it involves defacing statues and paintings being slashed and painting over but actually these people come into conflict with each other and you know there's a lot of sort of, of violence uh done i mean think for example of the saint bartholomew's day massacre um when when huguenots take uh the city of orleans in 1562 one of the first things they do was to burn the city's statue of the virgin mary um and so it's, it's one of the sort of techniques that people use to stamp their religious identity and authority we can also see it uh, happening in England. England is has a very different reformation uh, from what happens on the continent, which is very sort of a violent sort of upsurge from, from the ground upwards. The English reformation, by contrast, is very much a sort of top-down uh, reformation. However, uh, there are injunctions, particularly in 
Edward VI's reign, the, the boy king, who comes to the throne in 1547. And there's a series of, of royal injunctions um, in 1547, uh, and then an Act of Parliament in 1550 for the abolition and putting away of diverse books and images and what we see is uh, is a, a spate of iconoclasm and if you have a look at the outside of certain churches uh, like the cathedral in Exeter you will sometimes see uh, the evidence of this still on the face of, uh, of of saint statues so it was common to sort of knock heads off or or chip noses uh, to sort of slight them. Um, we also see this during the uh, the English Civil War uh, and Bishop Joseph Hall of Norwich described events in 1643 uh, when there was a parliamentary ordinance issued against superstition and idolatry and he records the widespread iconoclasm of people uh, in that in that city of Norwich. Uh, and I quote here, Lord, what work was here? What clattering of glasses, what beating down of walls, what tearing up of monuments, what pulling down of seats, what resting out of irons and brass from the windows, what defacing of arms, what demolishing of curious stonework, what tooting and piping upon organ pipes, and what a hideous triumph in the marketplace before all the country when all the mangled organ pipes, vestments, both copes and surplices, together with the leaden cross, which had newly been sawn down from the green yard pulpit and the service books and singing books that could be carried to the fire in the public marketplace were heaped together. So it's this sort of cacophony of violent rioting that is attacking the very sort of fabric of the church and wanting to change it and erase it and at the heart of it are these statues, these idolatrous statues that they want to remove. So there we are, iconoclasm, statues and the Reformation, Sam. Wonderful. Well, everyone, I hope you've enjoyed that. Do not listen to these stories about statues in the press without thinking about their past. Now we've given you some more to think about. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Uh, you can see all of the books we've written and you can catch up on all of the uh, last episodes. And there's also lots of magazine articles for you to get stuck into as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. Uh, if you want to help, please do leave us a review on iTunes and also do get in touch. We'd love to hear from every single one of you. That's it for now, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye, guys. Take care. Be safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.